First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What is your response to suffering? Suffering is not a natural good. It's, a, it's something painful. And so we try to avoid suffering whenever we can. And when we suffer, we tend to make an assessment. You know, what caused this pain? And how can I avoid it in the future? You take a simple example. You touch a hot stove and you burn your hand. You make the assessment, what caused this pain? Well, touching the hot stove. How can I avoid it in the future? Well, don't touch a hot stove. It's a pretty simple one. But now imagine a different kind of suffering. You're out driving in this winter weather, and someone else slides through a stop sign and T-bones your car. Now what happens when you run the assessment? What caused this pain? Well, it was someone else's for driving. How do I avoid it in the future? Well, I can't really because it wasn't up to me. And now, to add insult to injury, your insurance goes up, you know, because you got into an accident. Run the assessment again. What caused this pain? A car accident that wasn't my fault. How can I avoid it in the future? I can't. I'm a victim of circumstance and the crummy car insurance industry. Now that's just one example. When 
that happens again and again and again when we suffer and we don't seem to have an ability to stop it, what happens? What can become our default? We ask, what caused this pain? Well, I'm a victim. I didn't do anything. It's someone else's fault. I can't do anything to change it. How do I avoid it in the future? I can't. As long as I live in this world, people are just going to cause me pain. And so, if we think that way, that's our response. We can cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, and we can grow bitter because we believe the assumption, I'm the victim here. Now, if I were into some popular psychology, I could tell you the answer that I think many of you are expecting from me. The popular answer to this, I'm a victim mentality, is to say, you need to take responsibility for yourself. You're not a victim. You need to take charge of your life. But that response doesn't work either. That response is pride. It's saying, I am in charge of my fate. I am in charge of my destiny. I don't care what Disney says. Life is not what you make it. Life is not all in your control. Things do happen that are outside of our control. But that does not mean that we have to treat ourselves as helpless victims. Now, in looking at the letter of 1 Peter, we've seen two themes that, when taken together, form the true answer, the right answer, to our problem of suffering. The themes are, one, submission to authority, and two, suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, it doesn't sound like that helps us with an answer. But let's look at some earlier texts in this letter and see how Peter is developing these two themes. And then we'll look at how they come together and how they do give us an answer. So the first word in our text today, finally, is a, is a clue word, right? It, it, helps, it clues us in to the fact that this is the last in a line of a list of, of things. It's a list that Peter began in chapter 2, verse 13. And this is why I recommend you have a Bible in front of you opened, because I'm just going to hop through these real quickly so you can look with me. Chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And continued in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And each of these commands to be subject, that's the first theme, submission to authority, it also gives us a reason. Why is it that we should be subject to governing authorities? 
chapter 2, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to shame the you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then why should servants be subject to masters, even the ones who are unjustly cruel? Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And finally, why should a wife be subject to her own husband, even if he's an unbeliever? Verses, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So do you see the pattern that's developed here? If I can summarize it, summarize it like this. Submit to authority, even enduring suffering, for the sake of the good name of Christ. That's the two themes. One, submission to authority. Two, suffering for righteousness' sake. And just to be sure that we understand what Peter is calling us to do, he sums up this earlier section and gives it to us again with the word finally. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. This is the first theme, the theme of submission, and it's being directed specifically at the relationships in the church. but. It also is broader, because the next thing he says is, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Right? There's submission, and there's the understanding that there will be reviling, there will be evil, that's the suffering. And instead of taking that suffering, and turning it into a bitterness, or turning it back at people, evil for evil, reviling for reviling, what we're called to do is suffer for righteousness' sake. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 34 to drive home the point. And again, he comes back and brings up the second theme of suffering. And now this theme of suffering and this theme of submission It's permeated through this whole section. And the theme of suffering is going to actually come to a head in chapter 4. But we've seen it come up again and again, not just in chapter 2, but even going back at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 6, Peter mentions to these Christians that they have suffered, they've endured various trials. And then also in his command to servants, right, to be subject to masters, he tells them that in suffering injustice, they're following Christ's example. And now, in our section here, specifically in verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, at this point, I want us to stop and consider everything that Peter is commanding of us, right? Because I want to understand Peter's themes. Because Peter is not writing like Paul. You know, Paul, as we saw in Titus, 
he builds up one idea after another, and there's sort of this crescendo, there's sort of this tidal wave of like, here's the thing, once you put it all together. You know, in Titus, talking about sound doctrine, right? Sound doctrine being, being the central point. And he describes it in, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Sound doctrine. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now that sounds like the purpose statement of a thesis paper, right? A college essay, there it is. And in in Titus, then, Paul goes, and all of the commands he gives flow out of this, flow out of what is according to sound doctrine, commands that teach us how to be the people of Christ's possession who are zealous for good works. So, but that's not the way Peter writes. He doesn't have one main idea with sub-points, like a college essay, like Paul. Peter is more like when your grandpa tells you a story. And at some point, you kind of want to say, Grandpa, what was, what was the point again? What were we talking about again? And he might tell you, well, just don't rush me. We'll get there. Don't rush me. We'll get there. So Peter, he, what he's doing is he's touching on, on these themes, and then he comes back, and he hits it again, and he comes back, and he comes at it again, So that we can see, because he repeats himself over and over and over from a slightly different angle, so we can understand better and we can remember better what he's telling us. Now, Peter is working with several themes throughout this letter, and he's weaving them together. And in this section, it's these two themes that we've we've talked about. Submission to authority, suffering for righteousness' sake. And the way he weaves them together, he's going to show us, going to give us our answer to that problem of suffering. How do we suffer and not victim, victimize ourselves? How do we suffer in this world and still live righteous lives? So what are the two themes? I said it just now, but what are the two themes again? Submission to authority, suffering for righteousness' sake. We're commanded to be subject to the authorities that God has put in place, and we're told that we're most likely going to suffer while doing that. Now, how does Peter weave them together? Well, As we saw, he shows us how it works in three areas of life, civic life, you know, the governing authorities, work life, masters and servants, we'd call a lot more like employer-employee at this point, and family life, or husbands and wives. And he shows us the person who perfectly lived according to these two themes, Jesus Christ. 
he submitted to authority in all things before his father, and he suffered for righteousness' sake, for true righteousness' sake. So Jesus is our example here. And I'm just going to kind of pick off these three, these three areas and show where Jesus is our example. Civic life, government. Peter commands us to submit to human institutions a government, even though we may suffer for righteousness' sake while doing so. Jesus himself did this, right? He submitted to the authority of both the Jewish high priests and the authority of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. In John chapter 19, verse 4, after Jesus had been brought before the high priests and tried in their court of injustice, it says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, he is their Messiah. He has every right. He's their king. He is, the, he is of the line of David. He has every right as the king and Messiah of these high priests to say, I don't need to listen to you. And yet, he submits to their authority, to their judgment. And then, Pilate, because he realized that this was all done from envy, he comes to Jesus and he tries to talk to him and, and get Jesus off the hook in a, in a certain way. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't answer. So, what does the text say? So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus submits to the authority of Pontius Pilate. He doesn't say you don't have authority. He says your authority is lesser, and there's a greater authority. And I'm submitting to that authority, the authority from above, God's authority. And because he submits to these lesser authorities before God, he suffers. He suffers torture. He suffers death on the cross. For righteousness' sake. How does this look in work life? Well, Peter commands servants to be subject to masters, even cruel ones who make them suffer because the servants are righteous and the masters are wicked. And Peter directly points us to Jesus with this command. For he says in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, to the servants, he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
there again, there's, there's an authority that Jesus entrusts himself to. And because he does that, he can submit to the lesser authorities. And he can suffer in that submission. And then family life. Finally, Peter commands wives to be subject to their own husbands, even if their husband is an unbeliever, which could, of course, cause a lot of suffering for the wife. Now, how is Christ our example here? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What Paul is saying here is that that dynamic of submission to authority that exists for a husband and wife, it's the same kind of dynamic that exists for God the Father and Jesus Christ. Now don't mistake which is the original and which is the copy. Paul is not saying that Jesus acts like a wife. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the example and when a wife submits to her husband, she is imitating that same submission that Jesus Christ has to his father. So, then, in what way did Jesus submit to his father? There's plenty of places we can go, but if we go to Luke 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Monday, Thursday, the day before he's to be crucified. He knows it, and so he prays to his father. And when he came to the place, he said to them, to his disciples, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is our example for how to live according to these two themes. Submission to authority and suffering for righteousness' sake. You may think, okay, that's all well and good for Jesus because he's Jesus after all. He's able to do that. But when the rubber meets the road in everyday life, It really doesn't feel right. You know, if we obey God and do good, what's the reward that Peter is preparing us to expect from this world? Suffering. We naturally expect something different, right? We expect Peter to say to us, if you live according to God's will and submit to authorities, then you're going to have good times. It'll be great. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. But no, he says, if you live according to God's will, you should expect that you're going to suffer. 
How do you live? How do you live like that? You know, you may be able to live like that. You may be able to live trying to hold these two things together for a while, but eventually, doesn't the world wear you down? You start to say things or think things like the only way to get ahead in this world is to look out for myself. Or you think things like, I'm the victim of this. No matter what I do, it's always going to be terrible. I have no hope. Nothing good is ever going to come of this. That is a way to look at it. But I said that we needed to see how Peter weaves these two themes together. Right? He starts by showing us that Jesus is our example of how to do both. How to submit to authority. How to suffer for righteousness' sake. But the command is not primarily live up to Jesus' example. Peter wasn't even able to do that. Right? The Garden of Gethsemane, again, the disciples are scattered when Jesus is arrested. And then Peter is asked, well, you're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not. I don't even know the man. He certainly was not ready to suffer. Because if we see Jesus as only our example and nothing more, we'd still be hopeless to dealing with this problem. You know, we can see how Jesus did it, and we can think that's great for him, but that alone will not empower us to live that way too. So how do we do it? By sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Peter did eventually live up to Jesus' example, right? He did submit to authority. He did suffer for righteousness' sake. Many times in the book of Acts, we see him before the high priests submitting to their punishment, being punished for righteousness' sake, and rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer like Christ suffered. And he even willingly is crucified by the Romans. He submitted to suffering. But that did not happen to him until after he had met the risen Jesus. So the question is, what changed for Peter? How did he go from a cowardly loudmouth to an apostle and a martyr? Well, he saw who Jesus really is. Our scripture reading from today, from Isaiah 8, which Blaze read, is central in Peter's mind as he, as he wrote this letter. Let me read a portion of it again. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that, this is in Peter's mind as he writes the letter. 
earlier in chapter 2, he said of Jesus that Jesus is the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling. And now, in verses 14 and 15, what does he say of Jesus? He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And it's parallel, you can see up here, it's, it's parallel to what's in Isaiah. Do not fear what they fear, have no fear of them, nor be in dread, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. So who is Jesus, according to Peter? How does Peter see Jesus in this passage of Isaiah? Jesus is the Lord of hosts. What the Lord said to Isaiah is what Peter is saying to us. He's the God of Israel who brought his people out of Egypt, who gave his people the land, who saved his people countless times and redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy does not mean have good feelings about Jesus in your heart. It doesn't mean think pleasant thoughts about him. What does it mean to honor someone, something, as holy? It means to sanctify. Okay? Normally, that word, sanctify, sanctification, we talk about that, we mean our, the process that we go through of becoming more like God, more holy, more righteous, we live more according to his will. But the tabernacle and the temple were also sanctified. They were holy. They were made holy because they were set apart for God's use. Sanctification, being set apart, being made holy, they're all the same thing. And that area of the tabernacle and the temple where God's Ark of the Covenant was, the holy of holies, the most holy place, because that's the place where God was especially present among his people. So it was holy because God was there. The place had been sanctified. So what Peter is telling us is that that place in your heart that is reserved for God alone, that holy place that represents for you what you worship, That's where Jesus belongs. You need to 
consider, we need to think about Christ as being, to use John's phrase, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God are all in all. And that is the way that you'll be able to submit to authority. Because when you're submitting, ultimately, the, all these authorities that you submit to, government, work life, family life, you know that the authority that put those authorities in place is Jesus. And that's how you'll be able to suffer for righteousness' sake. Because you're following the one who suffered for you to make you righteous. You can know that everything that's going on is underneath his authority, is going according to his plan. Not of some far-off God that you might not really have an understanding of, but of the God who came down to dwell with us, to suffer and die for us, to bless us by letting us participate in that, letting us do the same, bringing us into it. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Set him apart as holy and beloved. And you will be able to follow him as Peter did into every situation, trial, and danger. Now, what does it look like when, when you do that? How does it change your outlook? Well, the last paragraph of our text today gives us sort of a, a glimpse at what it looks like. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Peter is really talking about. Who are the spirits in prison? How do they fit into the flood? How do they deal with Noah and the ark? What did Jesus proclaim to them? How did he do it? I'm not going to get into any of that, okay? I'm going to leave that alone. The church hasn't really ever agreed on all the details. But that's not the point. The point is given to us by Peter at the very end. How do we think about Jesus if we've sanctified him as Lord in our hearts? Look at the description Peter ends with. He says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So just a recap for the conclusion here. It's the title, Submission, Suffering, and Sanctification. These two themes, submission to authority. Submit yourself to those in authority over you. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of all authority. Be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? 
because Jesus, your Lord, has suffered for your righteousness. That's what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Yes, he is the example. Yes, we can look at what he did and be grateful. But he's also the Lord our God. Who's over all angels, authorities, and powers. We can trust him. We don't have to be victims. We don't have to be victors. Not in ourselves. Because our victory is in Christ, our Lord, and our God. Let's pray. Lord, as the disciples who walked with you on the way to Emmaus after your resurrection, when you spoke with them and revealed, opened up the scriptures to see how it was all about you. And afterward, they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he was speaking to us? Lord, would you help us to do that? To see in all the scriptures that it is all pointing to and exalting Jesus Christ, the mighty God. Would you help us to see it in such a way as our hearts burn within us? That we would follow you and that we would trust you. are great in power, great in humility. God above all, and a suffering servant who suffered for our sake. Lord, would you give us more of an understanding, more of a love for Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.